If you're new or you're visiting, welcome. We, we've been working through the book of Ephesians kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And as some of you may attest this morning, kind of taking our time. Uh, that's intentional. There's a lot bound up um, in this particular letter. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul back to the church in Ephesus, a church that, uh, that he founded, a church that kind of experienced revival. Uh, Paul, in his first missionary journey recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 17 through 19, uh, tells the story about how Paul founded this church. And this church saw explosive growth amongst both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and then Paul leaves on his second missionary journey. He goes to, uh, to Rome where he's now taken captive. He's in prison and he's writing a letter back to the church that has continued to experience growth and, uh, and revival, continued to see uh, folks from all sorts of backgrounds. We talked about how Ephesus was this cultural melting pot. There was occult practices. There were, there were Jews in the synagogue there. There was just kind of a, a mish, mismatch of, of all sorts of folks. And they all are coming together in the city of Ephesus. And Paul writes back to them to, to, to basically tell them they can be unified in Jesus Christ. Who they are in Christ is the, the tie that binds them together. And so as we opened up this letter, we looked at uh, verses 3 through 14 in chapter 1. There's one big long run-on sentence where Paul expounds on our salvation. God chose us. Uh, the, the Son redeems us. The Spirit seals us so that we know that the guarantee of God's promises are, are true for us. And then we saw last week at the end of chapter 1, how Paul kind of builds out what it looks like to have saving faith. He says that he had heard of the faith that these people had, that, that, that they had trusted in Christ, they had turned from their sin, they had repented, they trusted in, in Jesus by faith. And then he prays for them very specifically that they would take access, they, they would accept the access that they have to who Christ is through the Holy Spirit uh, by having the, the, the eyes of their heart enlightened. By, by, by experiencing the grace of God, by, by coming to see and to know his worth and his value and his grace and his mercy. And, and so on that end, Paul now opens up in chapter 2 and begins talking about uh, what God has done for us. If we are to be a people who experience God's grace, we need to have a robust understanding of, of who God is and what he's done. And, and chapter 2, although it is a, a chapter in, in, in your Bible, in the original letter, this is continued back to what we studied last week. There's, there's really one sentence that makes up the first seven verses. Guys, this is a really hard passage to interpret in the original language. I, I looked it up in one of the resources that I study, that I used to study this in, in Greek, and the first three verses had 15 footnotes. And I was like, oh, Lord, help me. Like, this is going to be a lot of reading. It begins with a dangling participle. I didn't even know what that meant. I had to go all the way back to like sophomore year of high school to remember what a dangling participle is and why it's wrong. Uh, but Paul has a main subject and a main verb that doesn't show up at least until verse 5 in this section. But God, God is the subject made alive. That is the verb. So everything before that is build up. So let's see what I'm talking about here in chapter 2. We're going to read the first 10 verses uh, this week and next week. We're going to be in this passage today. We're really going to hone in on verses 1 through 3 with a little bit of 4 and 5 as well. And then next week, we'll really kind of zero down on, on 5 through the rest uh, of the section in verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom 
We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. For the first 41-ish years of my life, this particular season we find ourselves in, when the leaves begin to fall and the weather begins to change, was, uh, was torturous to me. Uh, every fall, every time when the first kind of cold snap would hit or the first leaf would drop from a tree, I would have allergic reactions like hay fever that would last for about six or eight weeks, and it was miserable. Pretty much every November I knew... I would wind up somewhere in an urgent care or a doctor's office getting a prescription for a sinus infection because I was just so, you know, backed up in my nasal (laughs) cavity. And so about three or four years ago, I decided enough is enough. I had tried everything, every over-the-counter allergy medicine, every antihistamine. For a while, I was eating elderberry gummies and some kind of like holistic tea tree oil, which was just nasty did absolutely nothing to help my problem. And so finally, I was like, all right, I had enough. I can't live like this any longer. I'm going to figure this out. I had every neti pot, you know, everything you can think of to try to clean my head out. So I went to an allergist and I was like, all right, we're going to get this squared away. I don't care what you have to do. Test my blood, take a, a kidney out, whatever. Figure out why this happens to me every fall. And so he, he poked me with everything on earth, like wheat and grass and bubble gum, like anything that could possibly cause some sort of allergic reaction. He was jabbing into my body. And then after a couple of appointments, a couple of meetings, he walked in and he's like, hey man, drum roll, we figured it out. You are allergic to nothing. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, there's this, there's this thing called non-allergic vasomotor rhinitis. And that's what you have. And I'm like, what does that mean? Why does this happen then? And he's like, well, man, there's lots of things that can make it happen. Spicy food, change in weather. I'm like, I love the fall and chili. I'm not giving those two things up, doc. Like, this is, this is what I live for. And he's like, yeah, you just got to learn to manage this. And so I learned something from that, though. Really important, that I think applies directly to what Paul is trying to teach the church in Ephesus. Namely, if, if you get the diagnosis wrong, you will always get the cure wrong. If you misdiagnose the problem, if you don't have a a, a clear understanding as to what is actually messed up, wrong, problematic, jacked up in your life, then whatever you do to try to cure it, whatever steps you take, whatever habits you take on, whatever religion you grasp for, whatever you go after will will not solve your problem. And unfortunately, in, in our culture, in this day and age, and what, you know, philosophers and sociologists would say is late or post-modernity, we think that we can solve our problems ourselves. 
If you go to Barnes & Noble, I don't know, is it still open? Has Amazon not shut that down yet? But if you go to Barnes & Noble, if you go look on Amazon even, the, the, the largest section of books that's going to exist in any bookstore is what? Self-help. And here's, the, here's what Paul is teaching us here in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2. You can't fix your you problem with more of you. You are the problem. And so more of you doesn't solve that problem. It doesn't, it doesn't create some new reality. You, you need some other device, some other way to salvation. And so the next two weeks, we're going to look at really the kind of the three points of, uh, today and next Sunday. We're going to look at the three points that this section teaches us. Uh, I'm going to cover point one this morning and a little dip into point two. But next week, point two and point three is where we're going to camp out. And the three points we're going to look at is simply this. Paul tells us first in verses one through three, here's the human condition. Here's the problem. Here's what's wrong. Here's what's broken. This is the human condition. And then in, in verses 4 through, through 7, this is, this is the, the, the divine intervention. This is the divine solution to the human problem. This is what God has done. Uh, as I said in the beginning, main subject, God. Main verb, made alive. This is God's action to deal with our problem. And then lastly, as we see at the end of this, in verses 8 through 10, uh, we are a new creation. We, plural. I told you guys when we started this series, you got to pay really close attention to inclusive words. Paul uses the word all a lot in this letter. Why? Because he wants to unify Jew and Gentile. We all have this. He says it here. He says, we all share in this together. We is the language that he uses when he talks about us. And so, so the new creation then is a new humanity made up of Jew and Gentile. And that's really important when you get to the second half of chapter 2. But today I, I want to talk about the human condition. The verses 1 through 3. What I said is kind of the, the dangling participle of Paul's introduction to this whole idea that kind of comes to a crescendo in verse 5. The, the, the opening up, the, the construct of what's wrong with us. What's broken in humanity. Uh, but, but, it's a big but, just like verse 4, big but, big but. Um, and you're gonna, someone's going to send me an email about that because you're going to think that's funny because you have junior high humor. And I, I agree. It's funny. I said big butt three times. <laughs> here's, the, here's the big butt four times. <laughs> but I don't think we all agree on what it means to be human. I just don't. We live, and Paul is writing, as we said last week, to the church, namely to people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ right? He said, because I heard of your faith in Jesus and your love for all the saints. He's, he's working from the assumption that everyone is reading this letter has converted to Jesus and is trusting him by faith. I'm not working from that same assumption this morning. I believe that in a room this size, both in two services, this service and our next service, there are some of you who are still kicking the tires on Christianity. There's some of you who still have not yet transitioned from death over to life, which is what we're going to talk about the next two weeks. You're still kind of holding on to uh, what does this mean to trust Christ by faith? And that's good. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. But in our day and age, in this postmodern era within which we live, uh, what it means to be a human being, strangely enough, is su suddenly up for debate. <laughs> I can't believe that this has become the thing where like humanity can't agree that we are a thing collectively. Uh, the, the, the different definitions fly from all corners of the world about what it means to be a human. And so, so I want to do a little bit of groundwork before we jump into our human condition to just say we are humans. And, and there's a defining action that I think we see that Paul kind of is embedded in these first three verses about what it means to be human. 
that I'm going to ask you to, uh, to at least consider this morning if you have differing opinions about what it means to be a human. Paul says at the end of, there of, of, of verse 1 where he says that we are, uh, we are in conjunction with the ways of the world. That there's a path or a pattern that the world has embodied that kind of makes up this assumed action of all human beings. The world, all cultures, all nations, you know, all boundaries of assumed, everything within the earth. There's a way of doing this thing called life that humans are prone to that really kind of begin to define us as humans. I was reading a, an essay this last week, where uh, Carl Truman, he's a church historian, a teacher in historical theology, uh, wrote an essay that had nothing to do with the subject at hand today, but he was just talking about the, the civilization clash that's happening around the globe really kind of begins to break down fundamentally at what it means to be human. And he had this one paragraph kind of in the middle of the essay that I thought, okay, that's what we're dealing with. That's what we, we need to talk about. Before we can talk about the human condition, we need to talk about this experience that we all have. So maybe we can find some common ground on what it means to be human. Truman wrote this. He said, this is what comes of having no agreement upon what it means to be human. With no grounding in a notion of a commonly shared embodied human nature, we increasingly identify people by their tribes, their ideas, or their beliefs. This has turned people into abstractions, and the moral status of an abstraction depends simply upon whether we agree or disagree with what it represents, or perhaps more accurately, whether we find that it suits our tastes or turns our stomachs. So the reason why we're debating what it means to be a human is because if we can turn other humans into an abstraction, into a thing, if we can dehumanize them, then their beliefs or their behaviors or whatever we find repugnant, we can say, I am not like that, therefore I'm not human. And my suggestion to you this morning is, think of the most repulsive group, people group that you can imagine this morning. I'm sure you probably already have that in your mind because that's just how we humans work, which is a part of our human condition. But let's consider them for a second. I think that that group, no matter how repulsive you think they are, share something in common with you and me. And what I'm going to say we all share in common is what I'll call the, the ways of the world that Paul says here, the salvation project. The way of, of, of defining ourselves and then saving ourselves from whatever malady or, or, or curse we think has befallen us. So all of us are to varying degrees this morning, especially if we're not trusting Christ by faith. All of us are in some ways working out our own salvation project. We, we're trying, we can be tried to be saved from our guilt or our shame. We know maybe we've done stuff wrong, so we work to try to fix that. Maybe we're trying to, to be saved from, from our, our feeling of insignificance or of obscurity, so we work really hard to build a resume or to get market share or to get recognized in our field as an expert. We, we work to save ourselves from our family of origin. I want to prove to my family that I'm not like them. I'm the good one. You can, that's the self-help section, right? That, that, this idea that somehow... What, what's broken in us can be fixed by us. That's the thing that all human beings share in common. But in order to take the pill that Paul is trying to get us to swallow this morning, namely that we have a fundamental problem in our condition, we've got to agree that we're all on this salvation project. Now, I think that this salvation project manifests itself in, in really one of, of two directions or two paths. And I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm straight up plagiarizing this this morning I get it directly from Jesus in Luke chapter 15. Or Paul in Romans 1 through 3. 
There's one of two ways that we try to save ourselves. This is essentially what the Bible, I think, teaches us when you boil it down to its bare essence. The Salvation Project is either, on the one hand, what I call the escape and discover strategy, or on the other hand, the conform and achieve strategy. The escape and discover strategy of trying to save yourself, or the conform and achieve strategy of trying to save yourself. So I referenced Luke 15. Some of y'all know what's there. That's when Jesus... On a particular day, it says there were the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners had gathered about him. And Luke says, and Jesus began to teach them saying, suppose a dad had two sons. And these two sons, one of them went and cashed out his inheritance, wished his father dead so that he could get what was coming to him and went off to a foreign land and lived it up. Escape and discover. But then he gets restored. And when he comes home, he has an older brother, another son, who upon seeing his brother return gets angry because that brother says, I've always followed your, your rules and you never threw a party for me. I've conformed and I've achieved. I didn't get what was coming to me. There's your two strategies. Paul says the same thing in Romans 1, by the way. The, 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 the Greeks, they've, they've denied the power of God. They've suppressed that. They try to save themselves by worshiping and serving created things. And the Jews, on the other hand, have denied it as well. So that by the time we get to chapter 3, every mouth is closed and there is none who is good. No, not one. Both of these strategies are found, are found fruitless. In the escape and discover strategy, we flee the moral, social, and religious norms and expectations around us. I mean, really, any, pretty much just about any pop psychology, self-help book is going to tell you in some way what's really holding you back. If you really want to be saved or redeemed or delivered, just discover your true self. Go on a journey. Go Kerouac on everybody. Go live it up. Go on the road. Figure it out. Go explore things. Go experience things. What you have to do to truly be saved, though, is throw off the moral norms that your parents or your grandparents forced upon you. You've got to throw off the social norms of, of what culture says is right or wrong or good or true. You've got to throw off religious norms of the way that people who are dealing with their own, assuaging their own guilt and, and shame through religious practice. You've got to get rid of all of that, discover your true self, and then you'll have this experience of absolute and total autonomy. Because that's that vision of salvation that you're sold. That you, you get to self-define. You get to name for yourself who you are. And you, you can even literally rename yourself. I mean, that's a salvation experience in the Bible when someone goes from death to life. Paul was formerly Saul. Abraham was formerly Abram. You can do that yourself. You don't need a God to do that for you. So we have the escape and discover strategy of salvation that some folks get on and say, this is how I'm going to save myself. I'm going to throw off the chains and obligations of the society around me, and I'm going to be true to myself. The problem with that, as we'll see in just a minute, is it has never worked, not once. It didn't work for the prodigal son, the, first, the younger brother that ran off to a foreign land. It didn't work for the nations that rage. It doesn't work for anyone. And so the flip of that, the other side of that, the, 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 the type A uh, other side of that coin is the conform and achieve strategy. That's where we're told if you just study and devote yourself to the rules and the norms and the expectations, then you can be the best. And salvation is the experiencing of success or, or of winning or of getting it right. It's the older brother who looks at the father and says, I kept all the rules. I did all the right things. Look at my resume. It's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. You want to compare resumes? Look at mine. Prior to knowing Jesus, I was a Jew of Jew, a Hebrews of Hebrews. If you want to talk about zeal, I persecuted the church. You want to talk about the law, I was blameless. I conformed and I achieved. 
Everything that was expected of me, I lived up to it. Paul says, there's a problem with that as well. That's never worked either. That's the book of Galatians. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 15. Whenever the, 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 the Jerusalem council is debating on whether or not the Gentiles can be led into this thing called the church. And Peter says, if we make them follow the law, bros, it's going to be the same way it was for our ancestors. That's a millstone around our neck. We'll never get there. We'll never, we'll never be able to stay in the promised land. Why? Because both of those salvation projects that is the unifying factor of all of humanity. We're not, we're not made to worship. We are made worshiping. And the worship of, of our soul, the, the thing within our heart that Paul prayed that needs to be changed, it, it is curved in on itself. And so whether we try to accomplish salvation by conforming and achieving or whether we try to accomplish it by escaping and discovering, both of those are dead-end roads. We wind up either disillusioned and despairing or completely and totally full of ourselves, self-righteous. So Paul says there is an alternative. And that is where the scripture comes in and interjects and says, you've, you've misunderstood the problem. You've misunderstood the human condition if you think you can solve your you problem with more of you. You can't solve your you problem by, by self-discovery. You can't solve your you problem by working harder because the problem is you and it's me. And so we may disagree on what a human being is this morning. And if you're here and you've never trusted Christ by faith, I just invite you to consider, you've been on a treadmill. You've been working out this project of deliverance your whole life. I would just invite you to be honest this morning. Are you not exhausted with that? Because it's really exhausting. I, I, I tried it for 17 years of my life. I came to faith in Jesus. I got baptized into the church. and I didn't quite get what Paul's saying here, so I kept trying it. Like, oh, I went from being the best bad kid, now I'm going to be the best good kid. That landed me in a counselor's office real quick. I, I try harder, I try to be better, and I still see this stuff cropping up. When I read Romans 7, I don't know if Paul's talking about a believer or an unbeliever, but it sounds a lot like me. The thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I do. I can't make myself do the thing I'm supposed to do, but I wind up doing the thing I don't want to do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The human condition. So let's jump in in verse 1 and just see for a second what Paul's talking about when he talks about our human condition. The first three verses, again, it's a, another run-on sentence. It really doesn't find its subject or its verb until verse 5. But this participle that's dangling out there is meant to entice us to consider our problem so that then we can receive the only true cure. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the salvation project that everyone else is trying to do, following the prince of the power of the air. We'll talk about him in just a minute. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. By the way, that's a Jewish um, uh, colloquialism. If you find that in the Old Testament, that's the people who knew the law and just said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Forget that. I'm going to discover for myself who I am and what I'm going to do. I don't want to do what God tells me to do. That's, that's what Paul means when he says that. Among whom, and here it is, we all once lived. So it's not just a Jewish problem, this is a human problem. We all, all of us, Jew and Gentile, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's us. Paul says, there's our resume. Human beings, this is who we are. We are dead. We, we are captive. We are enslaved. And, and ultimately, we... Uh, we have a sin problem. 
So let's, let's just talk about the human condition really three ways this morning. I, I want to dive in and look at it from these three perspectives. The first off is our state. I want to talk about our state for a second. Because when Paul says we're dead, that's, that's really significant and, and it's really important. Like I said, these first three verses are really kind of what the first three chapters of the book of Romans teach. Um, and so if you ever really want to go in, in depth on what Paul means by we're dead, read the first three chapters of Romans. You'll really get a long argument there. But, but our state. And then I want to talk about our sin because Paul uses two words about sin here that are both uh, instructive and informative for how we understand what's wrong with our condition. And then I finally, I want to talk about our slavery and then we'll just for a second dip into our next point and talk about the divine solution. Okay? Our state. We are dead, Paul says. We're dead. We're not sick. There's a big difference between being dead and sick. Contra uh, the princess bride, there is no state of being most dead. Some of y'all remember that. Billy Crystal comes out and says, he's not dead, he's most dead. And so there's a way to provide this man to life with a thing that you do in the fireplace to get the, you know, flame going. That's, that's, not, that's not a real thing. It's not a real thing. We are dead. We're not sick. And, and that's an important distinction because if you feel that you're sick, then you could be sick to various degrees, right? Uh, I was talking to some folks even this morning about, about COVID and some folks had COVID. And I remember, I'm like, man, remember just a couple years ago when it was like, I got COVID and you kind of stopped everything and everyone stopped everything. And now it's like, oh, I got COVID. I'm going to go to the lake this weekend, you know? I'm going to get on a boat with some people and cough on them. And everyone's like, yeah, it's COVID. It's not a big deal. You know, you can have varying degrees of, of sickness. You, you can be sick that's kind of terminal. You can be sick that's like a head cold. And sometimes when we think about our state, we treat ourselves like we're just simply sick. That's the, that's the whole schema of these two different ways of doing salvation. If you're just sick, then perhaps the cure will be found if you can shed all of these assumptions and, and re religious dogmas and, and, and expectations of, of the culture, the religion around you, and go discover it. Maybe the cure's out there. Just like me drinking tea tree oil like an idiot. Maybe I can deal with a non-allergic vasomotor rhinitis by drinking the oil of a tree that just tastes nasty and did absolutely nothing. If you're sick, though, there's, we can be very sick to varying degrees. And the reason why Paul's talking about us being dead is because he's trying to unify a people who need to understand. Just because one of you had access to the promises of God, just because one of these groups practiced a particular form of religion with dietary laws and sacrifices and priests, and the other one was utterly pagan to the core and went to the temple of Artemis and did some crazy like black magic stuff like the book of Acts talks about, just because you had these two groups... You were on different salvation projects. The one thing you shared in common, you were dead. You weren't just sick. And, and, and that's important because when we talk about the fact next week that Paul says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. This is the gift of God. You didn't discover the cure and make yourself well. That's not the way Christianity works. The cure for sickness may be varied, but the cure for death, Paul says, is resurrection. That's different. Dead, dead people don't, don't need a new treatment. They, they don't need a new medication or prescription. They need to be brought to life. Secondly, Paul talks about our sin. He says here that sin is both omission and commission. He uses these two words, peripatoma and harmatia. When he says you were dead in your trespasses, peripatoma and sins, harmatia. The two words mean two different things. Peripatoma essentially means um, stripping and fumbling around. It's, 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 it's a word that was used in, in ancient literature of a person who's just kind of clumsy and tripping. It's, it's 
sinning, but it's not like a, this intentional thing. It's just that they, they're, they're clumsy. They're, they're tripping all over themselves. Uh, harmatia means to, it's a word from archery in the, the ancient world. It means to miss the mark or to miss the bullseye. And so Paul says that the sin that, 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 that tripped both, all of us up was both intentional and even unintentional. We were dead because this was our nature. This is, what we, this is what we do. Left to ourselves, we go against God. We don't just fail to live up to the law. We actually rebel against the law. It's not just that we didn't know the rules. It's that we knew the rules and we chose to break them. The human condition of being dead is due to the fact of our trespasses and sins. Paul says, in which you once walked, which is an ancient way in the first century of saying, this is how your life was ordered. You lived in this direction, a life marked by sin, either sins of omission or sins of commission, which resulted in, Paul says, our slavery. Our slavery is the result of our sin. It's the result of our state that we're dead. And then Paul says that, that our, our, our slavery kind of hits every area of, of existence. The first place is, is, is we're, we're culturally enslaved. We're enslaved to the ways of the world, Paul says. The way the world kind of tackles all the problems or tries to deal with all the issues. In which you once walked, Paul says this is an assumed way of life. Our first level of captivity exists in never questioning our pattern of life. We don't step back and go, you know what, maybe I got this wrong. Instead, whatever salvation project we find ourselves on, whether we're escaping and discovering or we're conforming and achieving, we find a them to pin the bad guy on and we say, our way is the right way. This is the, the secret behind every political ideology. Other those people, that way our way is always the right way. And Paul says we get enslaved to our way that way. We, we bury ourselves in our in our ideologies and in our, in our uh, political idols. And, and so therefore, we think that the world, the way that we're doing it, is the right way. And Paul says that becomes a form of slavery to some people. Left to ourselves, it becomes a form of slavery for all of us. The ways of the world. But not only that, Paul says, we're not just enslaved to the ways of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're not just enslaved culturally. We're enslaved supernaturally. That the world has a, 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 a commander who's, who's giving direction. And Paul says he's the prince of the power of the air. We don't have to be afraid of him. But, but like Peter would say in 1 Peter, he is a roaring lion seeking to devour people. The devil is real. And, and apart from the intervention of God, spiritually dead people follow the ways of the devil. We're ruled and controlled by a force that is outside of our control. We're just led around, led astray, following the whims of, of both the world and the devil off the cliff. But that's not it. It's not just, the problem is not just external to us in the world or supernatural over us. The problem, Paul says, is really right in the middle of the human heart. Look at what he says next. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's a big debate on whether that children of wrath means that we are children who deserve the wrath of God because of our sins and our disobedience or, or the, the wrath that we see emerge whenever people who are hell-bent literally on saving themselves in opposite directions will eventually turn on each other and try to kill each other. Think Cain and Abel. And so people debate, which one is Paul talking about here? I think it's both. I think you can see the innate conflict bound up in the human species where because we're all bent on trying to satisfy the self, because we're all trying to fulfill the desires of the flesh and the passions that rage within us, then anyone who stands in the way of me doing that becomes an enemy. 
And so we become children of wrath. That's where all wars ultimately start. My way is the right way. Your way is wrong. And I'm going to kill you if you don't agree. So that's one way to look at it. The other way is to say, and God is our Father who has been good and kind and loving and given his law to the world is just in punishing that with the wrath of God. As 2 Peter would say, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, we're just children awaiting that day when the wrath of God will be poured out and judged on all of human sin. The problem exists within all of us. Our hearts are curved inward. Our focus is self-directed. And this morning, if you're a Christian, as Paul is writing to Christians, he just wants them to recall, listen, you were like this. This is who you were. And the reason I think he wants us to remember that is really twofold. One is because we're going to talk, what we're going to talk about here to end in just a second. There is a divine solution to that problem. But two, you, you can't feel or see, your, see yourself to be superior over any other human if this is who you were before Jesus. This is the death knell to all visions of superiority, whatever they may be. I didn't get in because I did something better than you. I didn't get in because I discovered the cure. I didn't get in because I was a little less sick than you were. You were dead. I was dead. We got in by miracle. Paul says the same life that brought Jesus back from the dead is the life that God now gives us. That is the divine solution. Exclamation point, if y'all want to give it one, but God made us alive. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Y'all, salvation isn't a good decision. It's a miracle. And our worship depends upon that understanding. Our, our, our love of God and love of neighbor flows out of that understanding. Our ability to be patient and kind and long-suffering depends upon that understanding. As Ezekiel would prophesy in Ezekiel 26 and Ezekiel 37, God had to take a heart of stone out of us and give us a heart of flesh. The dead, dry bones in the valley had to be knitted back together by the word of God to make us come alive. And so to that end this morning, I really just pray and ask that one thing would happen amongst us, that we would be grateful, <laughs> that the grace that we have received, the gift of God that we're really going to bury down in next week and look at this divine solution to our human problem would enliven us such that it extends out in the way we treat, care for, and love one another, the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, that it would be, as the old hymn says, we could lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet and rise in him and him alone gloriously complete. We could stop our striving, not in the sense of wanting to be holy or Christ-like, but our striving of trying to save ourselves. And we could revel in the grace that we have received, letting it transform us into the new cre creation that God intends for us to be. So to that end this morning, Lord, would you make us alive once again in our minds, in our hearts, in our affections, that the eyes of our hearts would be opened and, and would be enlightened to see and to behold Jesus and his mercy towards us, how good and kind and patient and loving he has been such that we become a, a people who worship, a people who respond in gratitude, a people who love one another deeply from the heart, a people who forgive one another because we've been forgiven so much. Lord, would you get all the credit, all the reward for all that is good in our lives, and Lord, will we begin to see exactly what you're doing and transforming us and making us new. Would resurrection life reign and rule in us. In Jesus' name, amen.